0: It wasn't my turn. Hey, the, uh, the past couple of weeks, we have mentioned the importance of, uh, of, of teaching your children the story. Uh, we've looked at the, the Passover and Exodus over the past couple of weeks. And I wanted to, to make mention to you of a resource we have here that uh, we've made mention of in the past. But these are these are two devotional books. They're home devotional books. They have a, a short 10-minute devotion uh, for you to do around the dinner table that for each night of the week. And they are actually they actually go along with the Sunday school curriculum, curriculum we use in our uh, lower elementary class. So, for instance, right now, uh, lower elementary class is going through the New Testament. And here is the book they just started uh, last Sunday at the beginning of this. Here's the book. So if you want to uh, grab one of these for your house, um, we have... Two copies of the New Testament, two copies of the Old. You can buy them. They're wonderful. Make use of them. We're going to be in uh, the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 13. It's going to be on page 55. If you don't have a, a, a Bible and you want to grab one, they're in, the, they're in the rack. should be a couple in the rack in front of you. Grab one on page 55 in the Pew Bible. Exodus chapter 13, verses 17 through 22. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. Because God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him. For Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. And they moved on from Succoth and encamped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, so that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. Let's pray. Father in heaven, would you come, would you... Give light to our eyes to understand your word. Lord, we do pause for a moment and pray for uh, our family members, uh, our brothers and sisters in Christ even, but those who have been affected by the hurricane uh, in Houston. Uh, God, we pray that you would be with them um, in the midst of flood and devastation. Lord, would you provide over and above. um, I pray that, Lord, the, the church would come to the aid of those who are... Uh, hurting and without, and who need help. But God, we pray that, um, that your glory would be made known in the midst of disaster. Uh, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So, if you haven't been with us through this, uh, through this story of the Exodus so far, what we've seen happen, we, this is a turning point in the book. Up until this point, God's people have been slaves in Egypt. I also just realized that um, I didn't type up another slide with my, with my points on it. So you'll just have to listen really closely to catch everything. Sorry about that. Um, but up till this point in the story, God's people have been slaves in Egypt, right? They've been under the hand of Pharaoh. And what we've been looking at over the past few weeks is how God broke Pharaoh, How God humbled Pharaoh and broke Egypt and set his people free. And now they're free. Uh, the shackles of their past are broken. They're no longer slaves. And now they have a new identity. They're pilgrims. They're not really wanderers. They have a destination. They have a place they're going. The promised land, Canaan, called the land flowing with milk and honey. That's, that's where they're going. But part of being a pilgrim, part of going to a place is, is being able to trust your guide, which seems maybe, well, it probably works for us right in the days of, of GPS. Um, there's a, like the reason that I use Google maps and not Apple maps is because I find Google to be a little more trustworthy guide than Siri. Uh, Siri has put me in, I'm getting shaking heads. That's okay. You can trust Siri all you want, right? Uh, Siri has landed me in some hot water before, so I, my, my guide is Google, okay? Um, but so when you're, on a, when you're on a journey to a place, you understand the need to trust who you're following. And that's what we see in this, in this story. Israel's got a long way to go yet. And so the, the main idea for, uh, for today's sermon is this. God's mercies may be mysterious... God's mercies may be mysterious, but He is always trustworthy. Another way to say that is, we may not always understand what God is doing, but we can still trust Him. We may not always be able to understand what God is doing, but we can still trust Him. He shows Himself to be trustworthy. We're going to see that in three ways. First, we're going to... three mercies in particular. We're going to talk about the mercy of long roads... We're going to talk about uh, the mercy of kept promises. And then finally, we're going to talk about the mercy of constant presence. So the mercy of long roads, the mercy of kept promises, and the mercy of constant presence. Remember, a a few years ago, uh, me and Jake, who was the pastor who came before me, and an older gentleman from our uh, presbytery were going to a conference up in Chicago, and Hopefully, you know, if you've ever been to Chicago, at least now you take Interstate 65 and it pretty much gets you almost all the way there. I went to sleep at some point, and I wasn't driving. I went to sleep at some point um, after we had crossed into Kentucky or maybe right after Nashville. Somewhere in there I went to sleep and, of course, you know, I woke up. You know how it is when you go to sleep in the car and then you feel the car slow down. So I could tell, right, you're like I'm roused out of sleep by us getting on an off-ramp. And we're getting on, I think it was called the Cumberland Highway. And, right, it had, like, those nifty brown park signs. It said, like, scenic route, Cumberland Highway. And I, I remember asking Jake, who was driving, like, oh, where are we going? And I can't for the life of me now remember his answer. I'm sure it was a really good one. Um, but if you just want a quick map, I looked it up this morning, right? Okay, so here's Tennessee, right, Alabama. Chicago's up here. The Cumberland Highway went this way. Like, I think it went to North Carolina. <laughs> North Carolina and Illinois, right? That's a, long, that's a long way around. So, Israel is experiencing something similar here. By the way, we ended up... When you get on a scenic highway, there's not always good places to turn around, so we lost a lot of time. But we finally found a way to turn around and get back to the interstate. So, um, Israel is experiencing something similar. Because if you wanted to go from Egypt to Canaan... The shortest way was right here. It was to the north of where they were. It was called the Via Maris, and it was, the, it was the common trade route. If you wanted to get to what we know today as Syria, Iraq, and Iran from Egypt, you went by way of the sea. That was the name of the road, Via Maris, the way of the sea. They did not go that way. God does not take his people that way, the most direct route. And he tells us why in verse 17. When Pharaoh let the people go, God didn't lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. So that was a closer road, but there was an obstacle in the way of that road, and their name was the Philistines. And what we know uh, about the Philistines, they were, they had migrated from another part, they were sea people, um, but they were, they were not very pleasant people, they were very warlike people. In fact, history tells us that they even tried to attack Egypt, and You didn't attack Egypt, right, in in that day. So the Philistines, they didn't mind. They They didn't mind fighting. And God says he did not take them that way because he didn't want the people to change their minds when they experienced war. He knew that if they met the Philistines in battle, they would be discouraged and they would balk and they would run back to Egypt. They would, they would be discouraged, and they would go back to slavery. So instead of taking the short road that led north, he leads them south into the wilderness. He takes them away uh, from, from the Philistines and off the short road. And there's a dual mercy here, right? He takes them on a much longer road. There's a dual mercy here. First, God knows that if Israel were to meet the Philistines at this point... They would, they would turn back, right? They would say, following the Lord is a joke. Uh, this is just going to kill us. We're going back into slavery. Okay, that's better than, than war with the Philistines. They weren't ready for that. And, and this is what uh, another pastor calls the, the blessing of never, right? Um, and what he means by that is that, that for, for many of us, there have been some battles that you have never had to fight, and that is a good thing. Commonly, we tend to think in terms, especially in our circles, when, uh, when somebody comes to know Christ, we tend to think in terms of this really dramatic testimony. Um, John Newton, the man who wrote Amazing Grace, would have a testimony like this. Like he was, a, he was a slave trader who dabbled in voodoo. He drank a lot. I mean, he was a pretty awful dude. God rescued him out of that. And his, his story is pretty amazing to read. And sometimes we give the impression that if your story isn't that story, that you don't have a real story of God's grace at work in your life. And so what you need to hear is that, is that there is a grace to never. There is a grace to never having to do battle with some Philistines, because God knows that if you were to do that battle, it would be too much for you to handle, right? So that's, that's the grace of never. That's the mercy of God. God in His mercy is keeps oftentimes his people from going down that road. But that raises an interesting question. I mean, God had just defeated Egypt. Couldn't he just defeat the Philistines? Couldn't he just, you know, maybe cause them all? He didn't even have to defeat them. Maybe he could just cause them all to fall asleep while all two million Israelites kind of walk through their territory into Canaan or maybe he could he could do this is what he did with some of the Egyptians right he could change the Philistines heart to where they were made really nice and said sure yeah come on in the land is yours just let us have a little corner okay right he could have he certainly could have done it that way but he didn't which re- leads us to the second mercy here in the long road god has more work to do in Israel before he works through Israel. Now, God will eventually use Israel. He will work through Israel to conquer these nations that are in Canaan at the moment. And even at some point in the distant future, he will conquer the Philistines through Israel, through David, right? That happens in around 1000 BC. We're about 400 years before that. So that's a really long road, right? And the reason... Um, but, but God's not going to do that right now. Right now, God has more work that he wants to do in Israel before he works through Israel. See, as they take the wilderness road, there are several trials that they're going to face. And we're going to look at all of these over the next few weeks. They're going to have to face Egypt again at the Red Sea. They're going to face thirst twice. They're going to face hunger And they are going to have to face a warlike people who comes and attacks them. See, at this point, the Philistines haven't done anything to Israel. In one sense, God has no beef with the Philistines, so Israel doesn't have to go pick a fight with them, right? Um, And the reason that God takes His people through all of those trials is because He actually has work to do in them. He's changing them. Remember that these people have no clue what it means to follow God. Right, they've they've been enslaved, they've been under another master for 400 years. And even though they have the old stories about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, they, they, they have those remembrances that have been passed down, they don't actually know personally what it's like to follow him, what it's like to trust him. And that's what he has to do in them before he brings them into the promised land. If he just marches them right through the Philistines and into the promise without any kind of growth, it would be disastrous. And so God uses the long road to build us up, doesn't he? He uses the long road. He uses these trials to change us. And it's a part of his mercy. And it's a hard mercy. And the reason it's a hard mercy is because we like short roads and quick victories. Again, using Google Maps, right? If I'm taking a long trip, I pull up the destination on there. Google usually gives me three different destinations, I mean, three different routes to go and highlights the one that it thinks is shortest. And then the other one says, right, 30 minutes longer. And then for some reason, there's always one that's like an hour and a half longer. And I always think like, who's that one for? Right? Now, maybe maybe you're like a retiree, empty nester. And so you're like, yeah, right, country road, take me home. I want to go the back road way. Right, I got, I got three kids in the van without a video screen. I want the interstate short. I need, I need food and bathrooms. Okay, those are, like, I want the shortest route possible to get there, right? I want, I want short. I want quick. But that is not the way that God grows his people. God does not often grow us. Sometimes, sometimes maybe it's your story that when you came to know the Lord, there were some, there were some sins you were able to put down, right? some demons from your past that never bothered you again. But I would imagine that for most of us, uh, that battle has been a long battle, and that we've seen victory in walking with the Lord only through kind of a constant fight. And maybe you would even say that you've lost more than you've won. Right? That as the Lord has put you to the test, as the Lord has tried you again and again, you, you lost more than you won, and when you won, you realized it was only by His grace that you even got to walk away, right? What's God doing? God is, God is using the mercy of a long road to change and sanctify and grow His people, and as hard as that pressure is, as hard as that trial is, it's a part of His goodness. It's a part of the way that He works, Um. The mercy of long roads. So take heart. The road may be longer, but it is better. Right? Everything in you may want to go north, but God knows that that road isn't what's best for you. And so he takes you south, seemingly away from the blessing for a time. Because he wants to shape you in the wilderness. And that brings us to our second mercy. You have the mercy of long roads, the mercy of promises kept. Look at verse 19. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and, shall, uh, and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. Alright, this may seem a little odd. Who in the world was Joseph? And to know that, you need to be familiar with the book of Genesis. I'm going to give you kind of a quick background Joseph was one of Jacob's 12 sons. Jacob's name was changed to be Israel, and so you have the 12 tribes of Israel. But Joseph was one of Jacob's 12 sons, and Joseph was hated by his older brothers. He was hated by his older brothers because he was the favored son. And he probably didn't do much to help himself in that regard, right? When he had dreams... Uh, that that told him that his his brothers and his father and his mother were going to bow down to him. Joseph went to his brothers and family and said, Hey, guess what God told me? That's really not the first thing you want to do. Okay? Um, So they did not like Joseph. And as soon as they were able to get Joseph away from the uh, watchful eye of his father, they threw him in a pit and they sold him to slave traders. And into Egypt, Joseph went. And then God took Joseph on a long road of his own. Joseph rose in the ranks of servanthood and became the manager of a house only to then be thrown back in prison for a crime he did not commit. But then God liberates Joseph out of prison and and raises him not to manage a house but to actually manage the entire empire of Egypt. He becomes prime minister, second in command only to Pharaoh. And so Joseph is a man of considerable power and, uh, and wealth. And so um, then uh, God gives Joseph wisdom, tells him a famine is coming, and God gives Joseph the wisdom and influence to be able to get Egypt ready for the seven-year famine, right? Right? Um, and it's in the course of that seven-year famine that Joseph's planning keeps Egyptians alive. So God uses Joseph to save Egypt, but not only Egypt. There's famine everywhere, and Joseph's brothers come down to Egypt looking for food. And they think Joseph is dead, so they do not recognize this Egyptian man towering over them that they're bowing down to asking for food. Now, what would you do when you saw the brothers who had thrown you in a pit and sold you into slavery and pretty much left you for dead, bowing down before you. And you're a person of considerable influence and power. What Joseph does is he reveals himself to them. He gives them food and he says, bring my father, bring your families here it Safe, come down to Egypt and I will provide for you. That's what Joseph does, all right? So... What do we what do we learn about Joseph? First, we learn that Joseph was a man who understood God's gracious sovereignty. If you've got a Bible, uh, flip over to Genesis chapter fifty. Genesis chapter fifty in verse fifteen. Genesis fifty fifteen. Joseph's dad has just passed away. Israel has just passed away, and this is where we pick up the story. This is at the very end of the book. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Right. so what do, his, what do his brothers do? Now that Israel's out of the way, they think, well, maybe, maybe Joseph was just being nice to us because Dad's still alive. And now that Dad's dead, he's certainly going to take his revenge. So we need to send a message and say it's from Dad, right? Don't kill your brothers after I'm gone, okay? Um, so that's what they do. Joseph, Joseph gets the message. There at the end of verse 17, Joseph wept. When they spoke to him, his brothers also came and fell down before him and said, behold, we are your servants. Here's what Joseph said. This is a this is a man who understands God's grace in the long road. OK, but Joseph said to them, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? Now, to every Egyptian, Joseph looked as if he was in the place of God. He basically was. Pharaoh was a god. Joseph worked for Pharaoh. So, Joseph was basically God to the Egyptians, in terms of what he could do, humanly speaking. But Joseph knows he's not in that place. Am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. What you meant for evil, God meant for good. That's a man who understands God's grace in sovereignty. He understands God's gracious provision in sovereignty. He understands the value of the long road. And human nature would be to get revenge. The nature of grace is to see God's hand at work and to say, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. Not only that, but Joseph understands God's gracious promises. He understands not just what God has done, but what God is going to do. So take a look at verse 22. Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years. And Joseph saw Ephraim, Ephraim was one of his sons. Uh, Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children also of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. So Joseph gets to see his, his grandchildren uh, and, I think, great-grandchildren grow up or be born. Verse 24, And Joseph said to his brothers, What, What is Joseph so sure of? Why, why would he say what he says? Well, Joseph understood the promises that God had made to his forefathers. He understands this, right? The reason he wants his bones to be carried with Israel, he understands that Egypt is not where he belonged. Now, think about this. He had spent more of his life in Egypt than anywhere else. He was well known in Egypt... He had power and influence in Egypt, but even on the day of his death, 110 years old, he understood that Egypt was not where he belonged. Egypt was not his home. He belonged in the land of promise. He belonged with God's people because he belonged to God. He even says, right, listen, I want you to hear his faith, hear his certainty. God will surely visit you. How did he know that? Now, he remembered what God had told Abraham. We looked at this promise before in Genesis 15, where God told Abraham, listen, I'm going to I'm going to give you this promised land, but actually your descendants, they're going to be servants in a land that is not theirs, and they are going to be afflicted for 400 years. What if, what if you got that kind of foresight? Hey, by the way, just letting you know, you're, I know this is what you want for your great, great, great grandkids. This is the place and this is the plan. This is what you want for them. But I'm telling you um, that they will actually be in another place and afflicted for 400 years. That's a hard word. That what you, think, what you want for your kids, what you want for your descendants, they may not get that. But understand this, after that time is over, they will, I will carry them there, right? Joseph heard that promise to Abraham, and he believed it. And he said, God will surely visit you. When he does, take my body with you. Joseph was embalmed in uh, the tradition of the Egyptians, which means that his body was still fairly well preserved, right? And so what he tells them is, when you go Take me with you, right? Um, God is coming to get you. Don't leave me behind. Now, listen, Joseph knew that he wasn't in his body. Like, they knew that. We know that, right? He understood that it was just a corpse. He understood that there was no life in it. It's not that Joseph couldn't rest properly until he was buried in the promised land. But for Joseph, it's a symbolic move, right? It's a symbolic gesture of, of going home to the place where he belonged. And it was symbolic for Israel, too. I want you to imagine these, uh, these twelve tribes arranged as they are, marching out of Egypt. And they've had to leave in a hurry. There's lots of things they had to leave behind. The homes that they lived in, all the stuff that they'd acquired... Right, the jobs that they'd had, they had to leave all of that behind. Everything familiar, everything that they had known for four generations, they were leaving behind. But they take special pains. Moses takes special effort to go get Joseph's dead body and carry it with them. Why in the world? Because as they cross into the unfamiliar, as they go from being slaves to pilgrims, they need some Token, they need some symbol that God is keeping his promises. And what better way than to say, here we have it, this man who believed that God was going to keep his promises, put him in the marching file, and let's follow him. Right? It's symbolic for Israel that God is going to keep his promises, that God is trustworthy. And if you're leaving the familiar and walking into the wilderness, you need some proof that the guide you're following knows what he's doing. You're going to face things that other people and maybe even you. I want you to remember Joseph's story by the words that he said. What God intended for evil, excuse me, what, what you intended for evil, God has intended for good. That's the mantra, right? That they're marching with Joseph. And we hear that same, right? It's that same verification that what others mean for evil, God will bring about for good. So whatever they're going to face in the wilderness, God, there's no water here. God, there's no food here. God, there's enemies here. God is saying, remember what Joseph said. It's basically saying what Romans 8.28 says in the New Testament. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his pur- purpose. So you have the mercy of the long road, the mercy of promises kept, and then finally the mercy of constant presence. Look in verse 20 of Exodus 15, excuse me, Exodus 13. They moved on from Sukkoth and encamped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. And so that's just another way of saying that they had left behind civilization, right? They had passed the last outpost. Um, it's, it's, it's no man's land, you know, between Centerville and Tuscaloosa. Like, every time we make that drive, when we go that way, instead of going the interstate way, like, you pass that last gas station in Centerville, and then about six miles later, inevitably, somebody's got to go to the bathroom, right? That's kind of where they are, right? They've passed the last outpost, and they're not yet where they're going, um, and so they have to stop at the Dollar General in Duncanville. (laughs) It's happened. All right? So they've left civilization behind, and as they head out into the unknown, God actually provides them with His presence. God is actually with them, right? Right? The Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light. Verse 22, the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. So this is what we call, this is, uh, this is what, this is, the fancy word for this is called a theophany. So hold that for one day when you're on Jeopardy or you want to impress your friends at a party, right? This is called a theophany. It's a vision of God, a revealing of God. It's not, um, it's actually the presence of the Lord himself. This is the Lord, but he's revealing himself in a way that does not kill them, right? Uh, Because God will tell Moses later on, no man can see me and live. If God were to reveal his full glory to sinful man, we would die. And so the way that God reveals Himself throughout Scripture is is through what we call theophanies. And in the book of Exodus, He reveals Himself in fire. He did it with Moses in the burning bush. He's doing it now as He walks them through the wilderness as a pillar. It's one pillar, by the way. A pillar of cloud by day that is fire at night. Okay? So one pillar, or one, yeah, one pillar, two appearances. When He gets to Mount Sinai, the whole mountain will catch on fire. And then at the very end of the book of Exodus, we're going to see this pillar, this glory cloud, come to rest on the tabernacle. All right, so this is how God is revealing himself as they, as they begin their pilgrim road. We don't really know why, of all the things that God could use. Why does he use this? I'm not, I don't really have a certain answer, but we'll, we'll hazard one out there knowing that this comes from me and not from the Lord. Fire brings light which is a good thing, it brings heat, which is a good thing, but it's also unapproachable. uh, That if you get too close to fire, you know what happens. And so fire is both good and not safe. And in the same way, God is light, he's warmth, he is life-giving, and yet he is also unapproachable in his holiness. And so, as C.S. Lewis would say, he is good, but he's not safe. And so God reveals himself in a way that Israel can see him and know that he is always there. During the day, it's easy to see a big dark cloud. And at night, it's easy to see a big pillar of fire. There's no doubt that God is guiding his people through the wilderness. And this is important because Israel has no idea where they're going. They've never been this way before. And in fact, as we look at um, chapter 14, we're going to look, we're going to see that their road is very erratic, right? They go this way and then they turn that way and then they stop and camp and it looks like they're wandering. It looks like they're lost. And so as they're doing that, they don't have to worry about the way. They've got a guide and they just follow him. Wherever the pillar goes, they go and wherever it stops, they stop because they always know where their guide is, and what He's doing. Now, what does that have to do with us? Once again, this visible presence of God communicates that God can be trusted. That even though it's mysterious, yet it can be trusted. But what does that, what does that have to do with us today? I mean, don't, don't you kind of wish sometimes that you had a pillar? Right? How Like, haven't you said before, man, I, I just wish that God would reveal Himself I just wish that God would kind of would kind of show himself, give me something, like a, a pillar of fire. You probably read the story, I do, and think, man, a pillar of fire would be great. Then I would know exactly which way to go. I would have no trouble being obedient. I would have no trouble, like, that's, that's really what we think, right? If God would just show himself, I would have no trouble being obedient to his way. That's what we think, right? And we're going to see that, even though God is right in front of them, Israel still has trouble trusting Him. Even though they've got a good guide, they still have trouble faithfully obeying what He tells them to do. But we tend to think, man, oh, for the days when God showed Himself. Oh, for the days when God revealed Himself. I wish we had something like that now. I want to turn to the New Testament and read from the Gospel of John. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are all accounts of Jesus' life. John chapter 1, verse 18. John chapter 1, verse 18. Here's what John says. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him Known. Friend, you have something better than a pillar of fire. You have something better than an angel from heaven. When God shows up in the New Testament, He doesn't show up as some ginormous, miraculous, supernatural event. I mean, it is a supernatural event. He actually shows Himself. He shows up, literally, in the flesh. So it's not that God hasn't made Himself known. He has made Himself known. God's presence hasn't changed. So which way does Jesus go? Right? If this pillar showed the Israelites where they were to go, and are visible... Revealing of God is actually God himself in the flesh. Which way does Jesus go? Well, in the wilderness, Jesus is tempted to take the short route. He's tempted to take the quick victory. That's what Satan tempts him with ultimately, right? He says, you can have the crown if you'll just bow the knee to me. You can have what you're looking for. If you'll just go ahead and renounce, your, uh, renounce who you are and bow the knee to me. Renounce that you're Lord and follow me. In the wilderness, Jesus is tempted to take the short route and the quick victory. And you know what? When I'm in that position, and when you're in that position, nine times out of ten, maybe ten times out of ten, I would say, okay. Okay. You know which way Jesus goes? Satan wants him to go north. Jesus says, no, I'm going south. I've got to go through the wilderness because my people have to go through the wilderness. I can't take the quick road because my people won't be taking the quick road. The only way to get to the crown is to go through the cross. That's the only way the pilgrim can go. And so, friend... We have the same mercy. We have, we have long roads. We have kept promises. But even better than all of that, we have the presence of the Lord Jesus. Who even after his resurrection then gives the Holy Spirit to live in each one of us. Isn't it interesting? What, what happens when the Holy Spirit... Keep bearing in mind this fire image. What happens when the Holy Spirit gets poured out of Pentecost? Tongues of fire on the heads of the believers, right? God's presence no longer moving in front of them, now dwelling in them, so that tongues as of fire appear over their heads. God still guides his people. He's still faithful to keep his promises. And even though the road is long, we know that Jesus is faithful. We know that where we fail in the wilderness, he succeeds. And because he has succeeded, we know that he will get us all The way home. I do not ask to see the way my feet will have to tread, but only that my soul may feed upon the living bread. Tis better far that I should walk by faith close to his side. I may not know the way I go, but oh, I know my guide. His love can never fail. His love can never fail. My soul is satisfied to know his love can never fail. Let's pray. Father, for those of us who are accustomed to following you, we still struggle with the road with your promises, to really believe that what others intend for evil, and even sometimes what we intend for evil, you intend for good, that all things work together for good, God, that's hard to to trust. And yet we can believe it because we have one like Joseph, whose name is Jesus, who who has walked the road before us, who has trusted you before us who has secured the way before us. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. We know the way. We know the guide. Would you help us again to trust Him? God, for those of us here who have not believed in Jesus, who don't yet know You, and are struggling to come to grips with You, Lord, I pray that that they would see your grace. That they would see that d- despite their pasts, despite their present sins and struggles and hang-ups, you are the God who guides through the wilderness. And what we have to do is trust you. We have to follow you. Believe that you're good and that you're going to do what you say you're going to do. Lord, would you help us to trust that? Would you help us to believe in that today? Guide us, great Jehovah, pilgrims through this barren land. We are weak, but thou art mighty. Guide us with thy powerful hand. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. As the deacons come forward to give, uh, to, to pass the plate, I just want to let you know that if you're a visitor this morning, please don't feel compelled to uh, put any any gifts in the offering plate. This is simply for those who are a part of Jesus and are part of Grace Fellowship to express their devotion to Him through giving. Um, they're going to be mad at me for saying this. Uh, Colin, is Eddie still out in the foyer? Would you grab him real quick? That... In, in view of giving, there's a couple of people that I wanna that I wanna make known real quick. They're, they're, they would never do this. They never want the spotlight. But you need to know that they give of themselves uh, every week. And uh, that's Eddie Hooper and Miss Laura Moats and uh, my wife Rebecca Corley, right? Uh, Shannon Smitherman, who's not here this morning. She did this during the summer. But these are the people who minister to our children uh, every week faithfully. Um, They take seriously the call to make disciples of the young. The ministry that I think personally is the most important in our church. Right? Um, They take their time and effort, and they do it so well. And so today, as as we leave, I just want you to say thank you to these uh, to these servants who work so hard. Thank you. Let's stand and sing. Don't stand. Don't stand.